Hello, and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on exploring the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. In this podcast, we will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to find out what's causing antimicrobial resistance, how it affects the lives of ordinary people, and most importantly, what can we do to stop it? This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm Dr. Marty Peterson, and I've spent 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher. I will be your host for this series. Welcome back to Superbugs and You. In the final episode of season two, we will be focusing on infections caused by Neisseria gonorrhea. Gonorrhea is the second most common bacterial sexually transmitted infection in the world, and it has become a superbug. It has developed resistance to every antibiotic currently approved for treatment, and multidrug resistant strains have been identified globally. We will speak with clinicians advocating for their patients, a global health expert tracking the spread of antibiotic resistance in this disease, and a leading scientist in drug development. All of these interviews will provide actions needed to combat resistant gonorrhea. Good day, everyone. My name is uh, Theodora, Dr. Theodora Elvira Wee, and I'm a medical officer on sexually transmitted infection in the Department of HIV hepatitis and STI programs at the World Health Organization. As you know, I started my career, imagine 25 years ago, talking about sexually transmitted infection. I was an STI physician in a small town in the Philippines where I had to treat about 250 cases of, of patients every day. And to see all these different types of individuals that would come to me to look at what, what, what they are doing or what are their concerns related to sexually transmitted infection. Initially, I thought that it was just about treating STIs. But really, within that field, it's a very completely complicated word to treat. It just doesn't look at the disease. It looks at the, at the relationships. The, it looks into the different vulnerabilities of people. And so therefore, and the issue that it is always a neglected um, priority for government. So that to me, I think that really built on the idea that someone needs to take care of STIs. And I'm already here like almost 25 years, still trying to advocate for more support to sexually transmitted infection. So that's where I am coming from, Marnie. Thank you. Thank you for that, your background and, and your perspective of why you got involved. At, at the World Health Organization, you're leading, you have many uh, goals and focuses. You're leading the development of sexually transmitted infection guidelines, trying to address an antibiotic resistance, particular for Neisseria gonorrhea, 
supporting key interventions for, for specific populations, and also working with your team related to overall surveillance of the disease and antibiotic resistance. What, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in, globally related to Neisseria gonorrhea and, and the issue with resistance and treatment? Thank you so much. I think, Marnie, you know, the first challenge is that Neisseria gonorrhea is the second most common sexually transmitted infection, and it's curable. There are about 87 million cases annually uh, related to gonorrhea. And the greatest issue that we are facing now is that countries are reporting increasing resistance to azithromycin, uh, which is the uh, treatment for gonorrhea, and also emerging resistance to ceftriaxone, which is the last-line treatment for gonococcal infection. So overall, that's the biggest challenge that we have to start with. But in terms of diagnosis, there are also challenges. We still, uh, although we know that there are accurate laboratory tests for Neisseria gonorrhea, these tests are expensive. They do not yield rapid results and require laboratory infrastructures and technical staff capacity that are typically inaccessible in many low resource settings. And because of this, in, in most of parts of the world, gonorrhea management is based on syndromic management. So this is an approach where uh, diagnosis is based on the presence of signs and symptoms and without any diagnostic test and you provide treatment based on the common uh, syndromes or that causes this syndrome. For example, if you had a genital uh, urethral discharge, you will treat the patient for gonorrhea and chlamydia. If you have a genital ulcer, you will treat the patient for herpes and for syphilis without really looking into any diagnostic tests. Yeah, this syndromic approach uh, works uh, pretty well and better for men because they are more likely symptomatic, but they are often asymptomatic in women. And as a result, with syndromic approach, we are in a phase where we missed a lot of uh, gonorrhea cases because a lot of women are asymptomatic. But if women comes in for a uh, symptom of an STI, for instance, you have a vaginal discharge syndrome, you are again over-treating cases for gonorrhea because a lot of women with vaginal discharge really don't have gonorrhea, but they do have other respiratory infection. Another challenge with asymptomatic infection is really pharyngeal infections or anal infections are often asymptomatic. And these are often the areas where the reservoir for resistance are very high. And if you don't detect oral or uh, anal infections, then you are per perpetuating and increasingly rapidly um, emerging infections, transmitting it more quickly through the oral and the anal route. So that's the challenge in terms of diagnosis. In terms of treatment, I, the biggest challenge that we are seeing is currently we know that uh, we still have uh, effective treatment, uh, which we recommend for the treatment of gonorrhea. But just as I've mentioned earlier, we now have increasing countries reporting resistance to azithromycin, as well as um, increasing uh, emergence of uh, resistance to ceftriaxone. 
So overall, uh, treatment will soon be more expensive because we are increasing the dosage of our last line treatment for gonorrhea. There are other two drugs that are currently in the uh, clinical trial so uh, for new gonorrhea treatment, but I, because that there is an inherent nature for Neisseria gonorrhea to develop and acquire resistance to multiple classes of antibiotic, antimicrobial resistance will likely continue to be a concern for current and for future antibiotics. So the challenge really is treatment at certain point will always develop resistance. If you take this to a local level, the clinician, the patient, you mentioned that a lot of the the, the treatment is driven by sy- symptomatic treatment without without the proper diagnostics. So you get either over or under treatment, and you certainly don't know if you have Neisseria gonorrhea, yes or no. Is that Neisseria gonorrhea resistant to the to the course of antibiotics that the clinician would traditionally prescribe? So what what are some of the initiatives are, are thinking around in increasing diagnosis at the at the point of care. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important thing. Uh, WHO and our other partners are really looking at facilitating the development of point of care tests that are accurate and that are rapid and that are affordable and that can be um, used in the primary health care level because that will be a game changer. If we do have a point-of-care test, then we could accurately uh, diagnose our gonorrhea cases and not guessing whether they have gonorrhea or not. We can then screen asymptomatic STIs, which overall the implication is that we can reduce infection, we can also reduce transmission, and we can reduce the emergence of uh, antimicrobial resistance to uh, gonorrhea. Uh, we have an initiative with FIND uh, that is now looking at this locus point of care test. You know, our vision for a low point care of test for gonorrhea is really almost like a pregnancy test. You know, you dip it in the urine and you say instead of, oh my God, I'm pregnant, you will say, oh my God, I have gonorrhea. But that's the way to really uh, make sure that people are aware of it and that they're able to provide adequate treatment. So I I think the initiative on low point of care tests is not just developing the test, but also making sure that it is linked to self-collection and and self-testing as much as possible and to link it to uh, treatment so that, you know, they uh, they are also provided with treatment. The other aspect of, of the risk of Neisseria gonorrhea, and you mentioned you've, you've been in this field for, for many decades now, is there's also the, the collateral damage or the, the collateral infections that can come with Neisseria gonorrhea infection. Are you at higher risk for other sexually transmitted infections, um, fertility, maternal health, all of these other factors that are incorporated. Are you also engaged in those types of, of efforts in, in, in tracking the connectivity between these in diseases? Yeah, I, I think very importantly, I know when you have uh, an untreated gonorrhea, uh, very important is that about 15% of untreated gonorrhea uh, can reascend and cause pal- a clinically apparent pelvic inflammatory disease. It's an infection of the uterus, 
the fallopian tubes and the ovaries that can cause acute lower abdominal pain. And, you, you know, for lower abdominal pain, uh, it can vary. There are different um, severity that can result into PID. Some you probably will not have um, uh, unrecognized symptoms. So it looks like you don't have pelvic inflammatory disease, but others can even have a tubo ovarian abscess that can burst and result into a life-threatening peritonitis. And we know that, for example, for pelvic inflammatory inflammation of the upper genital tract infection, um, this can damage and scar the fallopian tube. That then can result to consequences such as um, infertility. It can also result into ectopic pregnancy and you can also have chronic pain. Uh, the other things that are very important with um, with untreated gonorrhea is really the ascending infection uh, in men also that can also result into epididymitis or orchitis. You know, there's scrotum swells. <laughs> and as a result of that, you know, there are also issues related, for example, to urethral stricture that can make them have difficulty in urination as well as it can also result to male infertility. Also, one thing that is very important with uh, gonorrhea are the effects in pregnancy. There are a lot of um, uh, side um, uh, adverse effects of uh, gonococcal infection in, in pregnancy. For example, it results into spontaneous abortion. It can result into premature rupture of membranes and result into preterm births. Uh, babies can be born with low birth weights. You can have a postpartum uh, infection, so after delivery infection and even before delivery infections in mothers. And I think very commonly previously is that when mothers have gonorrhea, uh, they can uh, deliver and infect their babies and the babies can have neonatal conjunctivitis. So it affects the eyes. And previously, this is a common cause of uh, blindness. However, what has been instituted to prevent this are the uh, routine uh, eye drops that you see that they put in the eyes of babies after delivery to prevent neonatal conjunctivitis. So we don't really see that very often. And now I think more and more because of the emerging drug resistance, we are seeing cases of disseminated gonococcal infections that are being documented when the gonorrhea goes into the blood and circulates in with the blood. So you have a gonococcal bacteremia that can even result into septic arthritis. It can affect your hearts and the brain. But luckily, these kinds of uh, very severe complications are not happening because we still have good uh, diet, uh, we still have good treatment to start with. I, I want to switch to uh, the effects of nicotine gonorrhea STIs uh, by the COVID pandemic. As some of the, the research that I've read in the U.S. is showing that sexually transmitted infections have increased. What, uh, what are some lessons you learned and what, what are some of the things that you're, you're seeing? You know, I, I think this is, uh, we, we were trying to look at and, and see where we are in terms of STIs and COVID. I mean, in some countries, if you look at it, and most of the data really are coming from uh, European countries. And of course, during the COVID pandemic, 
where people are just, you know, they're not going out. They're not having as much fun as they used to be doing. Of course, there is a bit of a decrease in sexually transmitted infection, including uh, gonorrhea. And probably that is true. Uh, but then if you look at it in the U.S., maybe, you know, you get so bored and, and then you need to just have your freedom and you go out and, and you become less... Uh, um, aware of your surrounding, you you tend to do more risky uh, behavior, and so I, I'm sure that's probably why some countries are looking at um, increasing STI rates. But uh, because of this gonorrhea AMR surveillance system that we are currently having, uh, we do have problems because people are not seeking care uh, in the current health facilities, and as a result, if you don't seek care because they're uh, afraid of COVID. And as a result of that, therefore, uh, you know, you see lesser patient, uh, patient seeking care, lesser number of cases reported. But what we can definitely say that COVID, uh, because of the COVID pandemic, there are initiatives in terms of diagnosis and in terms of vaccine that we could probably in the future um, be able to also capitalize on, you know, you know, there are more uh, equipments, laboratory uh, equipments that we can also use for the diagnosis of gonorrhea, for example. And now with the vaccine, I mean, this is a good thing. We probably can use some of that technology to further our work on gonorrhea vaccine. So uh, that's where we are in terms of STIs and COVID. <laughs> My name is uh, Dr. Matthew Hamill. Um, I am an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I also serve as the clinical chief for sexually transmitted infections at Baltimore City Health Department. So I have, I have two roles um, currently. I got in, interested in, in infectious diseases really through, um, through HIV when I was at medical school. So I was at medical school in the, in the 1990s and um, was training as things really changed from um, you know the early to the late '90s with the introduction of highly active antiretroviral therapy. So um, you know I was able to see the um, transformative effect of um, infectious disease me medicine and particularly around um, HIV. So that really you know um, sparked my interest in a career in infectious diseases generally and specifically around um, sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. So my name is uh, Yuka Manabi. I'm a professor here at Johns Hopkins in the Division of Infectious Diseases as well. Um, I run the Center for Innovative Diagnostics and in Infectious Disease and am also the medical director of the John G. Bartlett Specialty Practice, which is the infectious disease outpatient practice here at Hopkins. Um, my story is that I uh, grew up at, with the HIV pandemic. Um, I also grew up in a time where molecular biology really took off. So the first article I ever did in Journal Club as an undergraduate was on polymerase chain reaction on PCR. And I remember vividly presenting that 
and thinking this is going to revolutionize the way we think about molecular biology and about molecular pathogenesis. And I was not wrong. And then HIV came about. Uh, I trained in New York City uh, as a medical student. And then uh, the pandemic of HIV followed me down the coast when I came to Baltimore to train. And really, I think of um, 1996 as the best year of my life, the year we got antiretroviral therapy for HIV. And uh, I saw people who were destined to die, who got to live. And then um, in 2006, when I was offered a job to go work in Uganda, I ended up staying for five years. It was the same reason. Antiretroviral therapy was now being offered to people who lived in sub-Saharan Africa and to take a job in East Africa to try to study the epidemiology of the rollout and to think about how to offer care to the biggest number uh, for the amount of money that was currently there under the president's emergency um, program uh, for AIDS relief was really an honor. And so that's what I did. And then when I came back in 2012, I thought I could marry my old life around molecular biology with my new life, understanding uh, domestic and international HIV. And so we started the Center for Innovative Diagnostics, uh, thinking that we could apply molecular diagnostics uh, better to more people to offer people some diagnostic certainty. Thank you, Yuka. And I wanna thank both of you for your time and joining us to talk about the topic that we're focused on, which is Neisseria gonorrhea and specifically uh, multidrug resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. So just to get into the topic, Matthew, I'd like to address with you the, the stigma that is associated with the diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection. As you work directly with patients in their communities, how, how, do you, how do you address this challenge? So stigma operates at so many, on so many different levels. And I think, um, you know, as a clinician who sees patients both at, um, you know, a world-leading um, premier um, hospital and research university at Johns Hopkins, and also um, patients at the local um, city um, STD clinic, I see, I see stigma um, operating in so many different ways and presenting so many different barriers to, um, to patients. And, you know, how do I, how do I address it? Um, I think that one of the ways that I try to address it is through, um, is through education, is through um, dialogue, is through education with peers and other healthcare professionals. Um, so, we're fortunate here at Hopkins to have the Prevention and Training Center, which is a um, which is an organization that prov provides um, uh, teaching and training um, for the whole um, Mid-Atlantic region. So I get to meet um, providers from West Virginia, from Virginia to Delaware, um, up to Pennsylvania, and um, I think that that openness and dialogue, and you know, starting really with the with the provider, so the provider understands that the person who's coming to them may feel vulnerable, exposed, frightened of being judged or um, um, dealt with harshly because of their story, uh, because of their sexuality, because of um, other behaviours associated with, with sex and sexuality. So that's the first thing is to try and just be open about it, you know, um, try and talk about sex in a really positive way and to understand um, 
you know, that, that sex is much more than a, um, you know, it serves much more than a biological function. You know, there's pleasure and relationships and all of the other things that are, that are, that are associated um, with that. As a provider personally, I, you know, I try and come to my interactions from a place of humility and try and engender a culture of respect and confidentiality so that the person in front of me um, understands that it's safe for them to tell me whatever they need to tell me. Um, and I think that providing a patient with an experience whereby they feel in, you know, listened to, heard, um, respected, and looked after um, is a, you know, a self-perpetuating um, uh, process of, em of empowerment for that particular individual. And how do you help patients to notify their partners that they've been exposed once a diagnosis is made? Well, yeah, that's a really crucial part of the of the job that we do as um, as providers with um, you know with an eye to public health and to um, addressing the epidemic of, of STIs within our community. So, what you're describing is something called um, partner notification, and that's the process by which the index, so the person who has been diagnosed with an STI, is able to make contact with their current and previous sexual partners um, to inform them of the fact that they may have been in contact with a sexually transmitted infection and um, to provide the, the, the partner the, with the opportunity to come to a clinic to be um, uh, tested and treated. And as you can imagine, that's really tough. You know, it's really tough because um, sometimes those conversations take place with somebody you've just met once that you, you know, you had sex with um, once, you know, after a party or you had sex outside of your relationship and you acquired an STI that way. And then you have to go back to your primary partner and have a conversation that will reveal the um, infidelity. So th those um, kind of conversations are really, really difficult. And a lot of people just don't want to, to deal with it. Either they're not able to contact their sex partners because they don't know them, um, or they're not willing to because of fear of intimate partner violence, rejection, um, relationships breaking down, all, 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 there are all sorts of reasons that make it extremely difficult. But there are processes in place that um, assist with that so that we, we work in, in sexual health with a team of professionals called disease intervention specialists. And part of their job is to, um, to work with people to facilitate partner notification so that the disease intervention specialist can contact partner, a named partner on behalf of the index without revealing the identity of the index so you could be sitting at your desk at work, your phone rings, and somebody calls you and say, hi, I'm calling from the, uh, from the sexual health clinic. We have reason to believe that, you, that you're a contact to gonorrhea, um, which, is, again, isn't an easy conversation. But that's one way of, of trying to sort of close that circle of infection, reinfection. Yuka, you've mentioned that you had quite a bit of experience working in Africa and so patients from around the world, in, in, that, in your experience, what, what difference did you observe caring for the patients outside of the US? 
Well, in low and middle income countries, as in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, resources are limited. And so they generally take a public health approach. So a public health approach means with a limited pot of money, you try to uh, achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. And so you can't uh, always take an individualized approach. Now, when you have an individual sitting in front of you, obviously um, you try to do what you can for that individual, but it may mean sometimes that you have to make choices. So um, one thing that I've noticed is that uh we don't spend a lot of money in uh, resource limited settings making a diagnosis. So often people are only treated when they show up with symptomatic infection and they will be treated empirically and algorithmically, meaning that depending on what the symptoms are, they will choose uh, a treatment course on the basis of what they think the person has rather than making a diagnosis. Um, that largely will work uh, and it does um, make a lot of people's symptoms go away, but it misses a giant portion of people who might have gonorrhea infection. And that is asymptomatic people, people who don't realize that they're having symptoms of gonorrhea. So if it's a man with urethritis, so they have a drip and they are uncomfortable, they are likely to come in. Whereas often women don't come in. And that's why we get, for example, transmission to infants when mothers are pregnant who might have gonorrhea or chlamydia. And also there are sites within a person where they wouldn't necessarily realize that they have infection. So you might have a rectal infection or throat infection, and you may not realize that you have infection there unless you get screened with a diagnostic test. And since we're not using a diagnostic test, um, you know, those people will never get diagnosed. The other difference, I think, in um, low and middle income countries uh, is that often pharmacies are the first place that people go. So if you have symptoms, rather than going to a sexual health clinic where you might encounter stigma or you might feel that you're not one of those people and you don't go there, um, that you go to a pharmacy and you tell the pharmacist what your symptoms are. And then they hand you a pile of pills because of course they make money by selling you things. And so they want to sell you something. And I think that that, um, and of course you don't get a specific diagnosis when that happens. They're just giving you, uh, so if you come in with fever, they give you a pile of pills for fever. If you come in with a drip, they give you a pile of pills for what, what, what they think is going to treat you. And I think that's why we're um, faced with superbug status for Neisseria gonorrhea, where soon it's gonna be resistant to most of the things that we know, because we found in a study actually that Matthew and I did together with our colleagues in Uganda, that most of the men that came in with urethral discharge syndrome who came in with a drip had actually already seen someone, had already been to um, uh, a healer or to a pharmacy and had already done something. And this was almost going to a medical uh, provider was not their, their first move. So I think um, that's one major difference is particularly, I think, um, addressing and treating symptomatic, asymptomatic infection. And then the other major difference I think is their inability as a public health system because of poor resources to follow up partners. So even if they know somebody has an infection, their ability to do um, uh, locate partners and treat partners uh, very much relies on the person who comes in 
So I think that um, it's not an anonymous encounter as it might be here where you're talking to a public health uh, person. Instead, you're asking, in this case, the woman or the man to tell whoever their partners are um, that they might have been exposed. And you can only imagine how poorly that system works. I'm I'm interested, Matthew, in low-income settings in the U.S., in the clinic, is it, are there similarity or differences to what you could describe? In the, in the U.S., um, in resource-limited settings, then we often, we also use a syndromic approach. And often we treat on, on that basis. And we will send laboratory tests to, um, to confirm the diagnosis, but we have to use that opportunity when that individual is there to make a diagnosis and treat them to the best of our ability without a laboratory test because many people won't come back. So that's the similarity, I think, with, it, with a resource-limited settings overseas. Um, the other thing that you said that I think is, is really important to, um, to pay particular attention to is the idea of asymptomatic infection. So if you think with gonorrhea that approximately 70% of all gonorrhea infection will be asymptomatic. So just to add on to that, I was going to say that it's really important for people to know their status. So recently, uh, there was a report that came out from the National Academy saying that for the sex- for sexual health, we should think more about prevention. So for women, particularly who might have asymptomatic infection, a huge majority of the time, they should, for women under the age of 25, they should get annual sexual health screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing. So in order to be able to do that, you have to have good access to diagnostics. So if you go to your regular doctor, they might send off a swab. You're not going to get the result right away. If it's positive, then you have to come back. Getting people to come back is not always as easy as you might think. Um, all women should have access so that we can make sure that those at highest likelihood of having asymptomatic infection would be able to protect not only themselves and get treatment, but also uh, unborn children should, should they be um, in reproductive years. So, so for me, that's an important message. Uh, and I hope that that came out loud and clear. Very important. I was wondering if you could share an anonymous patient story but some, some individual and an individual that impacted you and drove your commitment or continue to drive your commitment to improve global health as it pertained to sexually transmitted infections. There are so many from over the years. Um, there are so many um, different people that I've had, you know, the privilege to, to work with and to provide care for. Um, who have touched me very profoundly. One that sticks in my mind is when I was working in, um, in, in South Africa. So I was working at a large public hospital in Soweto um, and was seeing patients in the clinic. Um, the clinic doors didn't close. The blinds had fallen down on the windows. There was no privacy. And I saw a person who was um, incarcerated, who was brought in to the clinic with um, with abdominal pain and rectal discharge. And I saw this person while they were chained to prison guards and was not able to have really any kind of a confidential conversation with that person. But through a series of um, 
you know, facial expressions, by um, trying to almost um, communicate by telepathy, um, just try to figure out what was going on with that person. The person wasn't able to say, I'm incarcerated, I've been having sex with other men in prison. But that was almost certainly the, the that was almost certainly the, the, the context. And um, you know, what struck me the most was that, that that particular individual was so disenfranchised in almost every imaginable way. They had no liberty, they had no privacy, they had no ability to speak one-on-one with a clinician who wasn't gonna be harsh and judgmental. And it really made me think that, you know, as a provider, one of the things that we have to provide, apart from expertise and um, you know um, and good medicine, we have to provide compassion and we have to make a space available so that people can communicate um, difficult things with us. So, with that particular individual, I you know I guessed what had been going on just from you know putting some clues together and was able to without any diagnostics, was able to um, cobble together an antibiotic um, regimen that would uh, have treated that person for rectal infection with chlamydia, possibly lymphogranuloma venereum, gonorrhea, syphilis. Um, and, you know, I acted in, in, in good faith and to the best of my ability at the time. But, you know, one of the other things I'm, that I'm aware of is that that person may have had not, none of those things that they may have had inflammatory bowel disease, that they didn't have a sexually transmitted infection. So an act of good faith could have been contributed to the emergence of um, uh, antibiotic resistant um, sexually transmitted infections. Did you see that individual again? No, No. I did not. I did not. And it, it, it wasn't possible. So I think in that case, you know, there was no way to make a follow-up appointment. You know, the, the person was, in, was incarcerated. You know, they had no control about whether they came back and, and had, a, and had a, another review by a clinician. And, and, and the sad thing for, for me in many, in many ways was that, you know, I realized that what I was doing, the treatment that I was providing was just a, um, was just a Band-Aid. The prison had no... Um, access to testing or treatment for sexually transmitted infections, same-sex sexual activity in that community was highly, highly stigmatized. Um, Whereas if you stand back and take a public health approach, then that approach would be thinking about an intervention that could be rolled out in a system like a a prison to reduce the the burden of STIs. And whilst I um, subscribe to that approach because I think it saves lives, it doesn't always have the individual um, as, as, as the focus. And that's the difference. You know, that's the luxury in some ways of working in the, in the US or the UK is that you, you have the resources to do that. You have the resources to, you know, see that person as an individual and to, you know, bring all the resources you have to bear into making the correct diagnosis and giving the right treatment.
My name's Edward Hook. I'm a physician. Uh, most of my friends call me Ned. Uh, and I've been an infectious disease specialist for nearly 40 years. I sort of backed into my career in medicine in general. Uh, my father was a doctor, and so naturally I didn't want to be a doctor. Uh, and went through college, uh, really interested. Actually, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh, I had an advisor who told me that uh, I could continue my interest in aquatic things and still do a lot of good if I went to medical school, so I should consider it. And uh, the thing that really tipped the scale for me was that I worked uh, as an orderly in a hospital. I realized that as an orderly, do it, helping move people around the hospital, helping clean them up, preparing them for surgery, uh, I could help them. I could help them feel better. Uh, I could contribute to their health. And then I realized that if I went to medical school and became a physician, perhaps I could do that even better. My dad was actually an infectious disease doctor. And uh, so not only did I resist medicine, but I resisted in infectious diseases. And uh, I was in college, I was very interested in psychology and behavior and uh, in medical school. I was thinking about being a psychiatrist uh, for a long time. And, and actually that it becomes relevant because a lot of my research and a lot of my uh, work going forward with regard to infectious diseases and in particular sexually transmitted diseases is public health problems have to do with human behavior and perceptions as well as biology. And I think that's the thing that uh, drives me is that these fascinating diseases, first of all, can be prevented uh, and prevention always gets you ahead. Uh, instead of trying to undo the damage that's been done. And secondly, uh, they exist at the interface between perception and biology, human behavior. These are diseases that are transmitted through some of our most intimate and most uh, um, interactive activities with other people. Uh, and as such, they're very special. They're also uh, often all too often, I'm afraid, judge, stigmatized, and uh, there are popular concerns. We have this interesting paradox in which uh, people are hesitant to talk about sex or sexuality or things uh, of that ilk uh, unless they're telling dirty jokes or in comedy or things like that. And yet, sex and sexuality is a pervasive part of our world. And Sexually transmitted diseases are an unfortunate downside about that, but they're something that we can do a lot about. And they've been something that have fascinated me now for over 40 years. So that's, that's who I am. I went to medical school in New York, uh, at Cornell Medical School, and then went to the University of Washington, where I trained in Seattle with Dr. King Holmes, which was really the father figure for our field. Uh, I was then recruited to Johns Hopkins, uh, where I was for uh, about 10 years. And then uh, almost 25 years ago, 23 years, I guess, uh, I got an offer I couldn't refuse from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So here I am. We're going to get into some of the your, your your research as well as the whole um, behavioral, the stigma and, and whether people seek care or not because of that. 
uh, later in our interview. But I want I want to set the stage um, around the changes that you're seeing, and, and this is part of your research: the significant increases in sexually transmitted infections, just the the rates, including Neisseria gonorrhea, and how your lab is monitoring these trends of increases antibiotic resistance over the past 25 years? Well, let me sort of, if I, if it's okay with you, step back and yeah. provide a little bit of context. When we talk about sexually transmitted infections, it's probably worth pointing out that while we focus on really just a few of these diseases, uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, HIV, and let's never forget that HIV is an STI uh, just like those other diseases. But those are just four out of over 30 different infections uh, which are transmitted through sexual behavior. Uh, some of those, gonorrhea and syphilis, are traditional STIs that have been recognized for over 100 years. Uh, chlamydia, on the other hand, has really been appreciated for less than 50 years and something that we've only been able to test for for the last 25 or 30. So that, and and again, that's a one of the challenges when we get to sexually transmitted infections is there's so many of them, and we're interested in both specific diagnoses and treatments, but also things that will benefit us in terms of all STIs at the same time. Um, gonorrhea and chlamydia and syphilis uh, are the three that are monitored most closely by both the World Health Organization uh, and the Centers for Disease Control. And so those are the ones we have the best pictures of and really perhaps know the most about. All right, I, I want to switch topics and talk about your research. Okay. Specifically, diagnostic, diagnostic research and testing for Neisseria gonorrhea some of those challenges, but I, you, I, to expand beyond that, what are you focused on right now? I have a lot of interest. I always have had a lot of interest. I love seeing and taking care of patients. And much of what my research is informed by my interactions with my patients. My broad interests also include a lot of sexually transmitted infections. While much of my research has focused on diseases like gonorrhea, uh, that I have probably published on nearly every one of the 30 STIs that I mentioned earlier today. My interest in uh, and my research is focused on a number of different things. Uh, a major part of that research has been evaluation of new diagnostic tests. We've seen evolution from culture, which require has specific requirements. You have to Make sure that your bacteria don't die between the time you collect the specimen and the time they get to the laboratory for testing. Um, and so I've seen the evolution of diagnostic tests. That evolution of diagnostic tests has really been tra transformative, not only in terms of our ability to better diagnose infections, but in two other ways. One of those ways is that it's made testing easier for our patients. Um, it, until the advent of these newer nucleic acid amplification tests, in order to test a person for gonorrhea, specimens had to be collected from the possible site of infection with a swab. For women, this meant a pelvic examination, which 
is no woman's idea of a good time. And for men, this involved taking a swab from the urethra, actually sticking a swab into the penis to collect the specimen. As one can imagine, both of those procedures are not particularly uh, incentivizing for embracing routine testing and care. Uh, these newer tests, the nucleic acid amplification tests, and our laboratory had the good fortune to do some of the research on this, now have shown that we can collect a urine specimen from a man and pretty much from women and expect to accurately diagnose uh, gonorrhea and other STIs. And for women in particular, we've shown that a woman can collect the swab from her vagina on her own in the private end of private and have that test give not only as good a test results as we might have done with a swab in the past, but better test results. And so that has not only allowed us to do a better job of testing infections, but it's also allowed us to get testing outside of clinics. It offers the possibility for student health clinics, for uh, clinics that don't have facilities for pelvic examinations to be able to do testing. And I think as a research priority on the horizon, uh, we can look towards and look forward to the day when people can do their testing for these infections in the privacy of their own home. Really great. The other thing these new tests have done, because they're so very sensitive, is they've shown us that infections at sites other than the genital tract, specifically the oral pharynx and the rectum, are much, much more common than we previously recognized and represent important sources of infection. Uh, and so it also means uh, that in turn, I hope that we'll talk about this later, influences the way patients interact with their healthcare providers in terms of providing a history, helping their providers know how to provide them with the best possible healthcare. So my research in diagnostic testing has allowed me to observe the transformation from swabs and uncomfortable testing to self-collected tests that are easily done and are more accurate than they used to be. I My research has also involved new therapies, and so I've had the good fortune uh, to personally be part of research that has evaluated virtually every new antibiotic that's become available for treatment of gonorrhea in the last 30 years. Uh, and I've seen, an, again, an evolution of our therapies, thinking about uh, moving from the days in the 1980s when we were Required large injections uh, that were uncomfortable to patients to move to smaller injections and then oral antibiotics. Uh, unfortunately, today as resistance progresses, we're back to relying on um, on injectable antibiotics. But research is ongoing regarding uh, oral antibiotics that are very helpful. Amongst the new antibiotics that are being tested uh, for uh, treatment of gonorrhea, these two new antibiotics, zoloflodacin and jeptotidacin, are both entirely new classes of antibiotics unrelated to any of the antibiotics we use now. And that's part of the reason there's great hope that those antibiotics will be effective uh, as a barrier as, we, as antibiotic resistance progresses.
My research has also involved behaviors, uh, behaviors of healthcare providers, behaviors of patients. What pers- what puts a person at risk? How do people prevent using? Uh, what makes people either prevent getting gonorrhea or makes them do something that keeps them from taking steps to prevent gonorrhea? You know, if you think about the work that we do in, in sexual health and and screening for STIs, uh, most of our patients are patients who uh, have guessed wrong in one way or another. That is that they uh, had a partner who they were unaware of or who was unaware that they were infected uh, and uh, then uh, unfortunately became infected. So thinking about how to get people to embrace testing, uh, seek testing, realize that testing isn't something to step away from, but something to embrace. Uh, you know, just earlier today, I talked with a, a patient who was said she didn't want to be tested because she was worried about the test results. And we talked for a long time about the fact that testing uh, only gives important news. Uh, if she's not infected, what a relief. If she's infected, then there's something we can do about it. And if we hadn't tested her, we wouldn't have known. And if we wouldn't have known, she could have transmitted infection to others or been at risk for personal complications. So trying to sort of emphasize to people why testing is a good thing and something we should be seeking has been an important part of my research as well. I've got a couple questions coming off that, but I, I think you bring up an po- important point about just education and uh, and, and from the, the, that woman's standpoint or any woman's standpoint, you need to know so you can get the appropriate treatment, but there's other complications. You may be unaware they even have it, like you were saying, or maybe they think they have a, a yeast infa- vaginal yeast infection or something else. Um, and if you don't get the proper treatment, there are other conditions or issues or things that could happen later in time related even to fertility that could be complications of this unknown infection. So the educational piece is so important. It, it's very important. And there's so much we can do through yeah. testing and prevention. But it gets at what you're saying where there's a stigma. And then, and what do I do with that information? And how do you help me deal with the information? If, it, you know, they need to inform and things like that. So that just talking about the stigma associated with that diagnosis, is that something that you feel you deal with a lot? Absolutely. Stigma is very pervasive. Uh, um, almost 15 years ago, um, I was given an opportunity to talk about anything I wanted to talk about, which may or may not have been a mistake. But it, it led me to wonder why, when we had good diagnostic tests and good therapies, we hadn't done a better job of, um, of controlling sexually transmitted infections, and specifically diseases like gonorrhea uh, and syphilis. And I came to the conclusion that the answer really has to do with stigma, uh, and that what we've been doing uh, since the beginning of the 20th century was probably wrong. If you stop and go back, and I, I love history, and I went back and looked carefully, and uh, around the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the groups who were promoting uh, STD control were people who were uh, 
moral reformers, churches, uh, people who were uh, prohibitionists, uh, a lot of that. And a lot of the advertising and a lot of the messaging had to do with stigma. You know, people either got gonorrhea or other STIs because they deserved it or they were victims. And you know, if you if you put yourself into that group where you either deserve it or a victim, it's not something that's very helpful. It's really stigmatizing. And that that belief has carried forth for over a century. Uh, and the net effect of that is that patients hesitate to talk to their doctors about sex, sexuality. Doctors hesitate to ask their patients about sex and sexuality, but both wish they knew more about the other side of the coin. And as a result from that, and coming out of that talk that I got to give 15 years ago, here in the United States, we've begun to embrace an approach towards STI control, um, which was really started first by the World Health Organization. It has to do with, instead of pointing at disease and what you don't want to have, talking about health, which is something we all want, and embracing the topic of sexual health. And and the advantages of that is that health is something we all want. So if we get tested and the tests are positive, we can get it treated and take care of ourselves. If the tests are negative, that's good. We're doing the right thing and we can continue to do those things. It's permissive. It sort of says, I want to talk about your health. So just like your doctor talks to you about how much salt is in your food or whether or not uh, you need a mammogram or a pap smear. Uh, we can talk about what people are doing in terms of their sexual interactions with other people in a way so that that can be safe, respectful, and helpful. The, the, the stigma being such an important factor, seeking treatment, uh, do you do you, have you worked with any patient advocacy groups or, I mean, what's, what's the, I mean, a lot of times you get patient advocacy groups and they start to drive change and that helps that, that causes that behavioral change maybe in, in a, in a generation. Um, but I think it's been difficult and people don't necessarily want to talk about it. So I'm just curious if you're trying to reach out to groups like that. Oh, we're, we're actively trying to do it. This report that I just mentioned called out that it, first of all, I think too much and too often at the moment when we talk about sexually transmitted infections and sexual health, people say, well, that's, that's for the STD people to deal with. That's the infectious disease people. And one of the things that this report does is says, you know, every person, uh, Virtually all of us are sexual beings. And so our primary care providers have an important role. And the report specifically calls out organizations like the AMA, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Academy of OBGYN, and says, these people are our primary care providers. And the, and the screening, the testing to detect asymptomatic infections is something that our primary care providers need to be doing uh, and, and not leaving it, thinking it's somebody else's job. The, one of the powerful recommendations in that report is that every primary care provider should be taking a sexual history from their patients. It doesn't have to be an hour into every nuance of their sex life, but 
are you sexually active? How many partners have you had in the last year? And then depending on the answer, you can go from there. If I may digress, and you may choose to edit this out, but I, I, it's worth pointing out that for over 20 years, it's been recommended that every sexually active woman in the United States under age 25 be tested once a year for chlamydia and along with that gonorrhea. That, that's annual testing. It's irrespective of race, marital status, numbers of partners, age 25 and under, under 25. That's, and sexually active. So if amongst the people observing this podcast, if they are or know people under the age of 25 and they've seen a doctor in the last year and they don't know that they were tested for an STI, there are only two possibilities. One is that they weren't tested, which is contrary to the recommendations of the CDC, the AMA, on and on and on, every major illness. Or they were tested and not told, and that's not very good either. So, again, one of the things that I, I probably, I'll, I'd get shot if they heard me doing this, but I've told both my daughters, uh, who are, are young women, that if their doctors don't tell them that they're being screened for STIs, they should ask them to be screened. Again, just to illustrate the stigma and make it a little bit personal, but sometimes that makes it more impactful. Yep. When my daughter did that to her doctor, uh, it elicited a lecture from her doctor that young women didn't have to have sex to please men. Oh, okay. She, she has since changed doctors, but she then went back afterwards. She That just stopped her dead in her tracks. And she later made another appointment and went back to the doctor to talk about why that was not the right answer. And I, I like that, that I, the, for the listeners to have heard that and for you to give that example as well, because that is taking charge of your own health. You should it request is. it and get the information. You know, studies of primary care providers uh, have shown repeatedly that uh, when a new patient has gone to see a primary health care provider. If you segment those primary care providers into those who take sexual histories at that initial intake and those who don't, without being able to specifically explain why, the clients of, of health care providers who take a sexual history leave with sort of a global generic sense that those doctors are better prepared to take care of it's it's it has to do with being able to talk confidently and confidentially with your healthcare provider about things that are important to your health. I want to I want to switch gears and and talk about vaccines. Oh great. So what's the role of vaccines and where are we at with the research? Okay, vaccines are are a crucial element for dealing with STIs. Let me sort of point out as we get there, that we do already have two vaccines for STIs. People don't always recognize that. One of those is hepatitis B, which is a sexually transmitted infection, which is rates have gone down dramatically 
in this country and other countries where routine vaccination of children has occurred uh, because most hepatitis B is sexually transmitted. The second more recent example is the human papillomavirus. Uh, an STI, again, forgive me for going back to this stigma issue, but you know, a lot of people have this misperception that they're not the kind of people who get STIs. Well, human papillomavirus disproves that since we know that over 80% of sexually active adults will have human papillomavirus at some point in their life. That's an STI. So if you're not that kind of person, you're in a real minority. But to get that vaccine out there, it's had to be advertised more as a cancer vaccine than as an STI vaccine. That said, it's helped to already make changes in cervical cancer. So what about other STIs? The next great hope for a new STI vaccine is a vaccine to prevent gonorrhea. A number of years ago, uh, investigators in New Zealand had an outbreak of a bacterial infection closely related to gonorrhea called the meningococcus. The meningococcus is a, is a bacteria that causes meningitis and is a, a very serious disease. New Zealand had an outbreak. They created a vaccine for the meningococcus and it helped to control their outbreak of meningitis. Years later, they went back and they said, you know, it seems like we don't see as much gonorrhea as we used to. And the meningococcus and the gonococcus, these two bacteria, are very closely related, 98, 99% similar in terms of their genetics. And it turns out that this vaccine to prevent meningococcal meningitis also prevented gonorrhea, reducing the risk of gonorrhea in people who received it by about 50%. That observation has energized gonorrhea vaccine research. In fact, uh, there are now ongoing trials evaluating uh, a vaccine, once again, that would also work from meningococci, but also looking at its specific activity and reducing gonorrhea. And across the globe, those trials are underway right now. We can expect results. Unfortunately, research takes a while. Uh, we probably won't hear results for another two perhaps even three years, but there's great hope that those vaccines will prevent gonorrhea. At the end of each interview, I asked the same question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? All of us have something to contribute. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, with antimicrobial resistance overall, if you do not need antibiotics, don't take antibiotics. Secondly, I think for healthcare providers, if they, uh, they need to prescribe antibiotics when indicated, you know, we cannot control antimicrobial resistance in gonorrhea if we don't control the incidence and the prevalence of gonorrhea as well. So prevention is very important and it is key. And all of us can contribute to that. 
practice safer sex, use a condom. Moreover, I think this is very important also for healthcare provider. The stigma and discrimination uh, should be something that they need to work on. So very importantly is to have that approach of a patient-centered approach in SDI care, making sure that it's friendly, making sure that it is more acceptable. We can all, the starting point for controlling resistant infections today, as opposed to the research that will address it in the future, is to go on and get tested, to practice respectful, sexually healthy lifestyles, to talk to our partners about our sexual activities, to get screened regularly as recommended for STIs. Remember that this process of development of antibiotic resistance is an evolutionary process. And the larger the pool of possibly evolving bacteria, the more likely that evolution is to occur. So that if we can reduce the number of cases of gonorrhea, we will reduce the likelihood that the, that resistance will develop. You have been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. This podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, SIDRAP, .umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at SIDRAP underscore ASP and at AM Resistance. Thank you for listening. <laughs>